Good morning. The reading this morning is Psalm 38 and can be found on page 565 of the Pew Bibles, page 565. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me, even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I am like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I am about to fall and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I, only, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Saviour. This is the word of the Lord. It's not particularly uplifting stuff, is it? But it is still part of the Word of God, and we're called upon to learn from it. So let's ask for God's help in doing that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn from David's words in Psalm 38, and applying what we learn to draw closer to you. Amen. That psalm that we've just heard read is quite a contrast to Psalm 34 that I spoke from a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 34 is a great song of praise to God for deliverance. That, of course, is a desperate plea for relief. Psalm 34 is horizontal. It's addressed to other human beings. That psalm is vertical. It's addressed to God. It's a prayer, in other words. And we know the background to Psalm 34. We know a lot of the background. It's all there in 1 Samuel 21. But we know nothing about the background to the psalm we've just heard read. Oh, we know it's a psalm of David. And self-evidently, David was experiencing severe suffering 
at the time he wrote it. That suffering was both physical and mental. If you look at verse 3, you'll see the physical. There is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones. Or go on to verse 7. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. That's the physical and the mental you'll see in verses 6 and 8. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. And and David is clearly right near to the edge. He's right on the brink. Verse 17, I'm about to fall. My pain is ever with me. But that's not all. You see, David knew that he had done wrong, and he acknowledged that. Uh, He speaks of his sinful folly. That's in verse 5. And in verse 18, he says, I confess uh, my iniquity. And that was what was burdening him. He says, I confess my, my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. His burden was as much that as his physical suffering. Verse 4, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And here's the really important point. He linked his suffering with his wrongdoing and God's response to it. He saw that his suffering was a result of his wrongdoing. The second half of verse 3 says, there's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. And go on to verse 5. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. And he acknowledged that that came from God. That that God was punishing him. Verse 2. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. It's quite a thought, isn't it? A a few years ago, I was listening to a sermon online, not from anyone connected uh, with St. John's. And the speaker was talking about sin and its consequences. And they emphasised that God's requirements, God's laws, are good for us. And consequently, uh, things will go well for us when we obey those uh, laws and his requirements. And conversely, if we do not obey his requirements, uh, we shouldn't be surprised if things go badly. And the speaker spoke, therefore, about our self-destructive behaviour, self-destructive refusal to obey God's uh, laws. And all of that is right And true, the failure to observe what God commands um, is indeed self-destructive. But there's a problem. And that is that the speaker finished at that point. And what had been said was so partial as to be fundamentally misleading. Because it had left God's uh, actions out of the equation. You see, the Bible tells us that when we do wrong, God is displeased. God is angry by our our wrongdoing. And consequently, we damage our relationship with God. 
and expose ourselves, make ourselves liable to God's punishment. Of course, I know that many people are uncomfortable with that thought. You, You may be. It's rather easier to believe that bad things uh, that follow our wrongdoing are the natural outworking of the ways of the world, cause and effect. But but that won't do. Uh, First of all, even if it were merely a matter of cause and effect, God would still lie behind it. Because God necessarily would have made the world in that way. He, after all, is the creator. But more importantly, the Bible sees God as being actively involved in the world today, actively responding to our actions. More fundamentally, of course, some people are rather uncomfortable with the idea of God having emotions, passions, uh, feeling pleasure and displeasure. Um, but, but, But think about it for a moment. If God did not have emotions, God would be then merely, or what we refer to as God, would merely be a a force or a, a power, a major one, but nothing more than that. God would not be personal at all. And that is not the God revealed in the Bible, or indeed, incidentally, a God that explains anything whatsoever. Because if you think about it logically, Something that is a mere emotionless, impersonal force or power is part of creation. It's not actually outside creation. Well, I suspect that many people recognise, or most of you here, I've no doubt, recognise that the Bible tells us that God is personal. But I guess that a lot of us are a lot less comfortable with the idea of God's anger than we are with the idea of God's love. And and we need to ask ourselves, why why is that? I'd suggest that part of it is that we see anger as essentially a negative emotion, indeed probably something that is wrong. And it it may well be. Uh, We often get angry at the wrong things, don't we? And that that is wrong. Or having got angry, we lose control. Or perhaps worse still, deliberately do bad things in consequence of our anger. And again, that that of course is wrong. But anger itself may not be wrong. In fact, it may be the right and appropriate reaction to a particular situation. If we are not angry in the face of murder or child abuse, or robbing of people of their life savings, or a myriad of other things, then there is something wrong with us. The, the, the Bible, of course, tells us that God does get angry, and that God hates particular things. Uh, take, take this from uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 6.16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. It's quite a list, isn't it? But even
even more striking is what it says in Psalm 11. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Strong stuff, isn't it? And we're told, of course, that Jesus became angry on occasions. Uh, For example, on one occasion he had healed someone on the Sabbath, and although people didn't say anything, he knew that in their hearts they were condemning him for that action. And we're told that he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. That's Mark 3, 5. Think about Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Same thing. You see, God is holy and just. And he is therefore angry with evil, angry with wrongdoing. And he takes action in response to it. That's why the Bible tells us that our God is a consuming fire. I guess we all remember God is love, and that's absolutely true. But how many of us remember our God is a consuming fire? And yet, as I briefly mentioned two weeks ago, it's part of the goodness of God. God is good, and therefore he punishes evil. David recognised that fact, and he knew that God was punishing him. And and there are many other psalms in which the psalmist recognises similar things. There are six so-called penitential psalms, and the Bible says similar things in, in many other places. In fact, the Bible warns us about two equal and opposite traps that we can fall into. The first is the trap of believing that all the bad things that happen to us, all our suffering, is a consequence of our wrongdoing. And it isn't. Jesus made that very clear on a number of occasions. Um, For example, do you remember when on one occasion Jesus met a man who had been born blind? And the disciples said... Um, Is his blindness on account of his sin, or or is it on account of his parents' sin? And Jesus said, uh, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. In fact, Jesus pointed out that some suffering, some bad things in our lives, uh, will be the result of doing exactly the right thing in following him. I quoted it last time. In this world, you will have trouble, he said to his disciples. So we must avoid the trap of believing that all of our suffering is to do with our wrongdoing. It isn't. But we mustn't so flee from that trap that we career into the opposite trap. That is the trap of believing that God never punishes us that none of the things that happen in our lives are as a result of God's punishment. Because that is equally untrue, as our psalm today indicates. On another occasion, Jesus met a man who he had previously healed. And he commented to the man, "You're you're clearly well. And then he went on, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He was warned And so are we in relation to this. And as we see in our psalm here today, and elsewhere in the Bible, 
um, uh, that punishment of God may take various different forms. It may be physical. It may be um, mental. It may be social. I didn't mention that earlier, but it's here in verse 11. My friends and my companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbours stay far away, he said. And there's another thing I didn't mention. God's punishment may take the form of us being a victim of injustice. Go to verse 20, uh, sorry, go to verse 19. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Now you may say, hang on a moment, what's going on here? He's changed his tune, hasn't he? A moment ago, he was saying that he was guilty before God. Now he's saying he's innocent. Well, which is it, David? Has he, has he forgotten that he just confessed his sin? No, no, of course he hadn't. You see, his protestations of his innocence in relation to these people who were persecuting him uh, may well have been absolutely right and correct. Those people may well have been uh, uh, holy in the wrong and sinning before God in consequence. But, but, but here's the point. God was using their wickedness as part of his punishment of, of David. I know that's a difficult concept, but it appears time and again in the Bible. The most striking example of it is God's use of the Assyrians to punish his Israelite people, the Assyrian emperor in particular. This comes from Isaiah 10, which uh, I've quoted in the past. It made a big impression on me when I first read it because I suddenly understood something much deeper about God's character. Woe to the Assyrian, that's Sargon II, emperor of Assyria, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, Israel. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. In due course, God would punish Sargon and the Assyrian Empire, and he, he did, of, of course. But in the meantime, that emperor was the rod of God's anger, the vehicle which he used as part of his punishment of Israel. And again, just note the reference there to God's anger. David knew that he was experiencing the punishment of God. So how did he respond to it? Well, as the psalm itself witnesses, he prayed, didn't he? He cried out to God. And in doing so, if you think about it, you'll recognize he relied on two things about God. First of all, he relied on the power of God. You see, David recognized that as Jesus' life was to demonstrate, that God has utter control over the natural world. And as for human beings, well, 
Isaiah puts it well in Isaiah 40. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. David recognized God's power. And in doing so, he again avoided two equal and opposite traps. The first is the trap of seeing uh, uh, good and evil, God and the devil, as being locked in a war of attrition where God wins some battles and the devil wins other battles. Praising God for the good things, blaming the devil for the bad things, as if God were doing his very best but wasn't quite powerful enough to overcome the devil just yet. That has to wait to the end of time, the battle of Armageddon in Revelation. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God's in control now. Uh, By the way, if you look in Revelation, it never uses the term the battle of Armageddon because it's not a battle. It's a walkover. It's a non-event. You see, God's in control now. He, He could do away with evil now. He doesn't for his own good purposes. And David recognized that. But we mustn't, again, rush out of that trap and plunge straight into another trap of denying the reality of human agency. Did you notice David didn't blame God for the wrongdoing of those who were persecuting him? He knew God was using them as part of his punishment, but he also recognized that those people were responsible for their own actions. Their decisions were real. Human agency is real. And they were doing wrong and were guilty before God. And God would, in due course, punish them. We're back to the emperor of Assyria again. So, first point... David relied on the power of God. He presented his plight before God and said, God, you've got power to do something about this. Please do something. And then the second thing he relied on, more briefly, is the goodness of God manifested in God's grace. Take a look at verses 21 and 22. Do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Saviour. You, you see, David knew that God was punishing him, but he also knew that he was still one of God's people. He, he, he knew that God was still his God, and more important, his Saviour. So, so what should we take away from all of this? Well, I'd suggest quite a few things, um, but but they're grouped under two headings. Uh, The first is we need a right understanding of various things, and the second is we need a right response. And, of course, the second follows from the first. Uh, First of all, a right understanding. We need a right understanding of our own behaviour, don't we? We need to recognise when we are doing wrong. 
We, we need a right understanding of the character of God. We need to keep in mind both aspects of the goodness of God. Yes, his love and his grace, but also his holiness and his anger at sin. And following from that, thirdly, uh, we need a, a right understanding of the consequences of our sin. Yes, we need to remember that not all, indeed, probably most of our uh, uh, suffering and wrongdoing is nothing to do, sorry, our suffering and, and bad things that happen in our lives is nothing to do with our wrongdoing. But it may be, because God does punish wrongdoing. And then we need to have a right understanding of both God's power and the reality of human agency. We need to remember that God is in control and therefore we can put our case before him. And we also need to remember, though, that that doesn't mean he's responsible for the the behaviour of people like David's persecutors. And with all of that right understanding of our predicament, like David, we then need a right response. And the start of that response is, of course, to acknowledge our wrongdoing. And then to recognize that God's hand may be upon us, to use David's phrase from verse 2. And then we need to do what David did, to cry out to God. Uh, The superscription of this psalm uh, in our Bible says a psalm of David, a petition. That is quite a, a loose translation Uh, of of the second bit. What the Hebrew actually says is to cause to remember. What we're called upon to do is to uh, place our predicament, place our plight before God in prayer. That's what David did. Even though it was God who was punishing him, he put his plight before, before God and we're called upon to do the same thing. And we then need to remember that God understands our plight and understands us perfectly. Verse 9, all my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. Same is true of all of us. And then, and top of the list, we need to rely on God's grace. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are part of God's people. We can still say, my Lord and my Saviour, as David said. And David experienced it. And we've come right back to where we started this series because David wrote about what happened next in Psalm 32. Incidentally, we don't know precisely whether it was the same instant he was writing about. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That was David's experience and it can be ours as well. 
In relation to all this, we need to use David as our model. Indeed, we can use Psalm 38 as our model to cry out to God and experience the, the, the blessing of which David writes in the earlier psalm. Amen.